pay attention. Maybe you've heard that uh, said to you sometime, perhaps it was when you were back at school, uh, perhaps it's at university already, uh, falling asleep after the first few weeks. Perhaps it's at work, uh, while you've been sort of drifting off and daydreaming. Perhaps you've heard it at home, uh, from someone at home, perhaps your husband uh, or your wife. When someone tells us to pay attention, it's generally because we're drifting off, daydreaming. What am I having for lunch? What was the name of that actor? Did I leave the oven on? I see it a lot, uh, drifting off, <laughs> only teasing, but not an awful lot. Uh, <laughs> I used to see it more as a teacher. And the fault could have been mine, you know, a really boring lesson, open up at page 782 and begin on question 7. Uh, or the fault could be a really distractible student. You know, snow was always the worst when I, I was teacher training. You know, as soon as snow comes, not, nothing more you can do in the lesson. Everyone's distracted. Maybe you've been guilty of that at school or at work. Only what we're dealing with in our passage this morning is far more important than our work or our school. The Christians... Uh, that the author is writing to here, were in real danger. Danger of drifting away from their Christian faith and into something else, probably back into Judaism. And this passage here is a warning to tell them not to do it. Now, this morning, we're probably not tempted to become Jewish. But it has something to say to us too, because we can drift, can't we? We can make Jesus less than he should be in our lives, in our thinking. So the author gives us three points to tell us not to drift away, um, which are not on my screen. Um, but there are three points. I'll tell you them as we go along. The first one is pay attention. Uh, verse 1, pay attention. I'll read it to you again. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. It takes us right back to what we saw in week 1. We're to pay closer attention to what we have heard. God has spoken. God speaks, we listen. This is something that God has said that we're to pay attention to. We're to pay attention to what we have heard. It tells us what we need to do so that we don't drift away. This is uh, the author's way of telling us what to do. Now listening and paying close attention to what you have heard might sound a little bit boring. It might sound like that stuffy teacher telling you to copy out of the textbook. We long for something new and exciting, don't we? And it's coming in Hebrews. God does still still speak, we find in Hebrews. But before we get there, we must pay close attention to what God has already said. If we lose that, we lose everything. And the picture that we have here is that we drift away. That's the word that's used there. And really there are three ways that this word is used in the original Greek. Three pictures, if you like, that are in mind. The first one is of, of a boat. The second one is of a hand. And the third one is of a bottle. With a boat, well, the picture is really of a boat steadily drifting away from shore. Uh, I used to uh, spend a lot of time on a canal boat uh, with my granddaddy. He had one on the Leeds Liverpool Canal. And there was one occasion where uh, we went to sleep. We tied up the ropes uh, went to sleep and then woke up in the morning and we found ourselves at the other side uh, of the canal. And we don't know to this day whether it was that we didn't tie the ropes right uh, or whether somebody had come in the night and undone them. But we just gradually moved away from the side of the, uh, the, the canal and gone across the other side. We didn't wake up because it was so gradual. We just moved away. Or perhaps you had that incident where you've been in a swimming pool and you've had something like a lilo or you've had 
you know, uh, armbands or something like that in the, the pool. And you don't have to do anything, do you? If you just leave it there, it just gradually drifts away from you. And before you know it, it's at the other side of the pool. So it's almost unintentionally, but it's that same picture of drifting away. <coughs> the other way that she used is a hand. And the picture is of something slipping through your fingers. You're like holding sand at the beach and trying to hold it in your hand. It always slips through. And it's not something, again, that happens instantly. It's not as if you drop uh, the sand out of your hand, but it just sort of slips through your fingers. <coughs> the other way that it's used is of a bottle. And the picture there is of a bottle with a small leak in it somewhere. And it just trips. Drip. 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 But what happens to the bottle at the end? Well, it, it's empty. It happens slowly over time. Now, it's all right thinking about hands and bottles uh, and sand and all those different things. But when we think about this in terms of people, it's painful for most of us, isn't it, to think about. As we hear this about drifting away, most of us will have people in mind, people that we've known, people who've seemed to trust in Jesus, people who we've learnt from, people who we've shared with, who now seem to be nowhere in their faith. But very few of those people, certainly in my experience, it, was something, it wasn't something that happened overnight, was it? This picture is really fitting. It was a drip, drip, drip. <coughs> Pressures from jobs, pressures from family, pressures from friends. It was a few grains of sand here, a few grains of sand there. Pleasures from relationships, pleasures from money, pleasures from sin. And drip, drip, drip. Their love for Jesus grows cold. And in this state we know that some people leave the church, don't they? But some even don't. I've come across people who um, have drifted away in their hearts, but they, they stay on at church. So there could even be a people amongst us this morning, and that's you, that you feel that you've drifted away in your heart, even if you haven't, with your feet. More likely, though, it's that most of us feel that tendency to drift, don't we? All of us feel it sometimes, like the lila or the boat drifting away. You don't have to do anything, do you? You just have to leave it. The hymn writer says, doesn't he, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, and we do. But he gives us the answer here to this drifting. He says, pay closer attention to what you have heard. And what he's talking about here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we've heard. It's our salvation. If we're the boat, then it's the anchor uh, that we're to, to hold on to, that we're to put down, or the ropes that hold us to the side. If we're a hand, it's what we're to grasp onto. If we're a leaking bottle, it's what we're mended by. This is what we hang on to as Christians, what we have heard so this morning the first question i want to ask you is have you heard the gospel have you heard the good news about jesus that god the father loved the world so much that he sent god the son jesus into the world to die in our place because we had earned that death by our rejection and rebellion against him our loving creator jesus rose from the dead and is now seated at god's right hand in heaven ruling over the universe that's what we've seen over the last couple of weeks isn't it And what do we need to do to become part of this? Well, we need to repent, don't we? That's not just saying sorry for something, but turning from our rebellion against God and trusting in our own goodness, our own good works, and turning to him. It's repenting and believing the good news. Not just agreeing with it in your mind, but trusting in it in your heart. That's what we're to do to become part of that. So if you've never heard that before, that's basically the gospel. Now there's massively more to it. It's shallow enough for a child to paddle in, so it's said, and deep enough for an elephant to dive in. 
But this is what all Christians believe, or they're not Christians. This is the real basics, this is the nugget of it. This is numbers for mathematicians, if you like. This is rocks for geologists. Without this, there is no Christianity. But this is the best news in the universe that we have. But, again, I want to remind you what I've reminded you over the last couple of weeks. This isn't written to not yet Christians. This is written to people who've been around the block a few times as Christians. What he's telling them is that they need to keep hold of this. They need to grasp onto it. What he's telling them is that the gospel never gets old. The gospel is not something that we have at the beginning and then we move on from. We must go back to it again and again and again. It's no mistake, is it, that Jesus set up two things as a regular reminder for us in the church. He set up baptism that reminds us of his death. And he sets up communion that reminds us of his death. It's a reminder that we need to keep going back to the gospel. Not because it didn't work the first time, but because we keep forgetting it. We keep wandering, we keep drifting. So we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. And this is a command for all of us, however long we've been a Christian. Now over tea and coffee, you might want to chat about how you might do that in practice. Uh, i put that as an over-coffee question at the bottom of your notice sheet. If you still don't know, you can write it on a blue slip uh, on your um, notice sheets. Rip it off, put it in the, the box at the back, and we'll look at it when we do questions and answers in a few weeks, uh, well, next week. But why is it that we're to do that? Well, the reason that we're told is because the stakes are high. The stakes are high. That's verses 2 uh, to 3. Uh, the beginning of verse 3. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What he's saying here is that the stakes are high. The comparison is between the message brought by angels and the salvation brought by Jesus. What was the message brought by angels? That's a bit of a strange phrase, isn't it? Well, what it's referring to is the Old Testament law, the Mosaic Covenant. That's a posh word for agreement between God and man. And on the back of your uh, sheets, you'll see there's some verses there, Uh, one from Deuteronomy, one from Galatians, one from Acts. And this points us to the fact that this is what he really is talking about. So in Deuteronomy 33, 1 and 2, this is when they receive the law, this blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So there came to be this idea that the law had been delivered by angels. And it's, it's confirmed to us in the New Testament. So Galatians 3.19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that's Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. But it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So he's saying that the law had been put in place through angels. And again, uh, Acts 7, 37 to 38. Uh, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He has received living oracles to give to us. So, all that was to show you, really, that the Old Testament law 
the Mosaic Covenant was given to Moses by her angels, even though that's not immediately obvious when we read uh, it in Exodus and when we see it in Exodus in our life groups. But then this begins to make sense, doesn't it? Why he's been talking about angels so much. Why was it that he had to prove that uh, Jesus was greater than the angels, if they weren't obsessed with angels like other people were? Well, the reason that he needs to prove that Jesus is greater than the angels is to show us that what he brings is greater than what the angels brought at Mount Sinai. It shows us that what he brought was greater than what we have in the Old Testament. So that's the message brought by angels. What's the salvation brought by Jesus? Well, it's the gospel. The salvation here is something that is proclaimed, if you notice that, that's something that's heard. So it must be the gospel. That fits both ways, doesn't it? It's something that we hear, but it's also something that saves us. It's our salvation. So the salvation is the gospel by which we are saved from death, hell, and sin. And his point then is that the stakes are higher here. There's more risk at rejecting this than rejecting the message brought by angels to Moses. If it was so insulting to God to reject the message that he brought by his messengers... What about the salvation that he's brought through his son? How can we possibly expect to escape God's judgment if we reject? No, it doesn't say reject, does it? Abandon? No, it doesn't say abandon. Discard? No. Neglect? So great a salvation. Do you notice that? It's not saying ditch. It's saying uh, neglect. It's literally, the, the word in Greek is amelo. Mellow is to take care of something. Our mellow is to not take care of something. So if we don't take care of this, if we don't hold on to it, if we neglect it. There are two ways to kill a houseplant. You can do harm to it, overwater it, poison it, chop off all its leaves, or you can just neglect it. I should know. This is one of my houseplants. <laughs> no. I can promise you I didn't poison it. Yeah. It's neglect. It didn't do anything. It just came like that. That's what neglect does. Do nothing and it will die. So I want to ask you this morning, do you neglect? Do we neglect? Do we neglect our salvation? Does it get crowded out by other competing interests or demands? Do we take our salvation for granted? When was the last time that you thanked God for all that he's done for you in Christ? When was the last time you stopped in awe and wonder that God would save a sinner like you or like me? Do we get distracted from the gospel, caught in the busyness of church life even, that we move on to it from other, to other things and drip, 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 our love grows cold? If we neglect the gospel, we may just find that it slips through our fingers or withers like a dying plant. Now, some of you at this point will be worrying. Uh, You'll be worrying that you might be losing your salvation or have lost your salvation. Others are worrying that I'm suggesting that you can lose your salvation or you think I might be. Can you lose your salvation? Can you be so careless, so neglectful as to lose it? The answer is no. You can't lose your salvation. Genuine Christians are uh, safe. They cannot lose their salvation. None could be snatched from Jesus' hand. But I want to say that the author of Hebrews knows that too, as he's writing this. I don't think he's mistaken. He's not given us a different point of view. 
He decides not to mention it here, that we can't lose our salvation. Instead, he gives us a warning not to. Uh, Someone said to me a couple of weeks ago that the most helpful thing they'd heard of this was, can I lose my salvation, yes or no? And the answer to Hebrews is, don't. Don't lose your salvation. Somebody doesn't have to have ever actually fallen off a particular cliff for you to have a warning sign saying, don't fall off it. So it's a warning sign for us there. It's a warning sign telling us not to neglect our salvation, not to drift away. So also are people who have drifted away. They can be a warning sign to us. This is a, a quote from John Calvin. This is I read through Calvin's Institutes a few years ago. This was the scariest bit I think I read of the whole thing. This is from uh, John Calvin's Institutes. He says, Therefore, while we all labour naturally under the same disease, that's sin, those only recover health to whom the Lord is pleased to put forth his healing hand. The others whom in just judgment he passes over, pine and rot away till they are consumed. And this is the only reason why some persevere to the end, and others, after beginning their course, fall away. Perseverance is the gift of God, which he does not lavish promiscuously on all, but imparts to whom he pleases. If it is asked how the difference arised, why some steadily persevere, and others prove deficient in steadfastness, we can give no other reason than that the Lord, by his mighty power, strengthens and sustains the former, so that they perish not, while he does not furnish the same assistance to the latter, but leaves them to be monuments of instability. It's quite hard stuff, isn't it? Monuments of instability. There are there in part to teach us, don't go there. Don't neglect your salvation. The doctrine of perseverance, the idea that we keep going as a Christian, that we're safe once we are a Christian, is never used in scripture as a cop-out. We must persevere. We must hold fast. We do it by paying closer attention to what we have heard. We do it by going back time after time to the gospel. And the author is including himself in this, you notice. But when we get to the end, we'll actually see that it's a gift of God. That it's God who's brought us through safely. But it doesn't mean that we don't hold on and keep going back to the gospel. This is hard to hear. Because all of us have close friends who seem to have drifted. Friends, parents, children, husbands, wives. But there's an encouragement as well, isn't there? That all of us tend to drift from time to time, don't we? And to different degrees. But if we're the Lord, we will persevere. We will not be, we'll be, we'll be unable not to come back. But that should never be a cop out. Where we are now, we need to pay closer attention to what we have heard. If we get comfy on our lilo drifting out to sea, we may find that the shore was never our destination in the first place. So the stakes are very high. But then the salvation is very great, isn't it? We're given a second reason to pay close attention and not to drift away. We're to pay attention because the stakes are high. And then secondly, or thirdly in our... um, Points, because God does not lie. Because God does not lie. That's the second half of verse 3 to verse 4. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witnesses, bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. What he's saying here is that our message of salvation is backed up as much as, if not more, than the one received in the wilderness. 
in the Old Testament. And so much so that the whole Trinity and the apostles are involved in this. Do you see that? Jesus taught it. That's what we saw in uh, the the second half of of verse 3. It was declared to us by the Lord. What he's meaning there is the Lord Jesus. Uh, Jesus was a preacher. He died for our sins, yes. But before that, he proclaimed the message, didn't he? He proclaimed the good news. He told people, didn't he? I have come to preach. So he not only died, he actually told us what his dying meant. He's the author of our salvation, that's later in Hebrews, but he's also the publisher of our salvation, if you like. He proclaimed the gospel that we believe. So Jesus taught it. The apostles taught it. You see that in the last part of of verse 3. And it was attested to us by those who heard. Now this is actually a big clue that this isn't one of the apostles that's actually writing this. Because he's saying that actually we heard it through those who heard It's a clue that it's not Paul and it's not one of the twelve. But it was attested to them by those who heard it. Uh, The apostles did hear it though. That's what he is saying. That's what he's affirming. Those who knew him through his earthly ministry while he proclaimed it. And we have their accounts recorded in the New Testament. Sometimes referred to as the memoirs of the apostles. So the apostles could back up this amazing salvation, this amazing gospel as being true. So Jesus backs it up, the apostles back it up, and then God the Father as well worked miracles while they taught it. Look at the first part of verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. That phrase, signs and wonders, is a bit of a loaded phrase in the Bible. If I said milk and honey, then people who read the Bible a lot, you'd be thinking promised land, wouldn't you? That's, That's the words that we associate with it. Signs and wonders is supposed to make us think of the Exodus. That was the big time of signs and wonders, always in that order in the Exodus. The miraculous signs, the Passover, the salvation from Egypt. But here we have a much greater salvation, don't we? And those signs multiply, if you notice in the Bible, around significant biblical events. So you get loads of signs and wonders around the Exodus, the exile, Jesus, Pentecost... But actually, much of the other rest of the pages of the Bible, uh, there's not really that much mention of them, is there? There's like pockets of wonder, uh, if you like, not a miracle per page. And these are the two major salvations of Scripture. The Exodus and the Gospel, Jesus dying on the cross. And both of them have these signs and wonders attesting them. Both of them have these signs and wonders to show us that there's something special going on. So even God the Father is involved here. Showing uh, how amazing this is by the signs and wonders that went around with Jesus through his ministry. And through the apostles as well as they carried it on. And the Holy Spirit attests to it as well. So have a look at uh, the second half of verse 4. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So we see the Father's involved, the Son's involved, and the Holy Spirit's involved. The whole Trinity involved in attesting the truth of the gospel. Now, it might be miraculous signs he has in, in mind here. It might just be the, the, the signs of uh, the gifts of word ministry, uh, if you like, that he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit, preaching, teaching, which help uh, back up the gospel. I think it's more likely that it's the miraculous signs that it's talking about here, because it's something that God has done. Uh, as they bore witness, the apostles, he's saying they were backed up by these things. He bore witness. It's not bears witness, it's bore witness. It's talking about something in the past. 
Just like uh, in the life groups, we saw that God was giving uh, Moses gifts to attest to the truth of what was going on, the way that he could do those signs with uh, the snake and things like that. God gave signs to these people to prove that they were the real deal. Uh, to show that they were really uh, telling the truth, that they were proclaiming this great salvation. That's not to say that God doesn't do miracles anymore. Um, but he doesn't do it to accredit people in the same way that he did with the apostles. He doesn't need to. Because actually we've got them recorded in scripture, haven't we? We've got what they uh, said in scripture. And we pass those things on. So just like the Israelites were to pass on what they'd heard from Moses. And what God did through Moses. Uh, so we're to pass on what God showed through the apostles. That actually proved that they were telling the truth. God didn't repeat the signs and wonders of the Exodus every generation, did he, as we go through the Bible? But instead he pointed them back to what he'd already done. And that was to give them confidence in the future. So, the whole Trinity and the Apostles is there attesting to the truth. The truth of it stands on the fact that God doesn't lie. Because the whole of God is, is involved in telling this. If God has gone through such pains to show us that this is true then we shouldn't shrink away from it, should we? God has spoken it to us, and God does not lie. So what are we to do in the light of all this then that we've seen this morning? Well, we're to pay attention, aren't we, to what God has said. Not because he's some stuffy school teacher or grumpy boss, but because God cares about you. God wants you to persevere. He wants you to keep going. And he knows more than anyone that the stakes are high as we do that. And he's shown us the truth of it in so many ways through the Trinity and through the Apostles. So God doesn't want us to neglect our salvation. He wants us to live in it, to live it out. He wants it to be the focus of our lives. He wants it to be our song, to sing it with every breath that he gives us. And our last song reminds us of that. It says that with every breath, I am given, I will sing salvation's song. And that's our prayer this morning, isn't it? That God will keep us going, that we'll sing salvation's song with every breath that he gives to us. So let's stand and sing as the music starts. <laughs>